Welcome back to the show. Today we've got a live recording from an event that uh, we did in Nashville for our friend Mallory Wyckoff. Uh, and the we I'm referring to is friends of the show, Josh Graves, Patrick Chappelle, uh, and myself, uh, along with a few others who put on this event for Mallory. Uh, her new book is entitled God Is. It's a book that, that had a lot of really good stuff in it. Um, definitely helped me see God from a lot of perspectives that I didn't look uh, from. And so it was very uh, revelatory for me, helpful for me, eye-opening for me, and I bet you'll get some of that from this conversation. So uh, that's what you're going to hear. It's a live recording, so those are always uh, fun, unique, different, and that's what this one is. It's a good conversation, and we've got some Q&A that we did at the end, and I think uh, we're going to have most of that on there as well. So uh, here we go. My friend Mallory Wyckoff, thanks for listening. Um, so, but let's introduce the woman of the hour. Give it up for Mallory Wyckoff, everybody. I wish I had a Beyonce song. No, she ha- you have that. You keep that. She has that mic. I'll get that one. Yeah. Turn it on there. Okay. Hello. Hi, friends. Thank you for being here. This is so, so lovely. I'm really... Really honored. This is a special night. Oh, hi, Luke. Hey, how are you? Do you want to chat? Uh, I mean, I feel like that's what we should do right now. Okay. Um, okay. This was a big week for you. You had a book that came out, but also uh, there was uh, a first tattoo. There was. That happened here I'm in just, Nashville. I'm going to lean like this just in case you guys can see it. Could you describe you what that is? It? I'm seeing squinty eyes. There's just a wave. It's a wave. I once read a book that said God is in the waves, mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote that one. And uh, I was inspired by myself, and I got my first tattoo, in part because one of my greatest fears with writing, I hope it's okay, I'm just taking this over. You're just going. Was you're putting something into print that will stay in this fixed form, but you do not, you keep going, and that feels terribly vulnerable. And I just love that what the universe did was send me this book that's like the first two lines are now no longer true. I'm no longer 33. I no longer live in Florida, but I mention, or live in Nashville. And I mention that I'm researching my first tattoo, and at least that is true. It I got it. And I that, did it. And congratulations on that. Thank you. In my first book, I made jokes about wearing masks. And that was in 2018. People Completely love. different uh, set of jokes with that at this point, which I'm not making either for or against right now, just for the record. Um, you, <laughs> see, that's why it's awkward to make a joke about masks in 2022. Yeah. It's way different in 2018. Um, nevertheless, this was... Bef- anyway, you have a reference to Waves in the book that is a shout-out, a quote from uh, The Good Place? That's right. Right? Okay. Um, can you... Tell the quote. The story is like, it's the end of the show. I didn't watch the show. But you have... You need, yeah, you're going to need to do that. Well, I have other things. That, like, I, I would like to. Yes, I will. But I have podcasts to do for friends to promote their book. Um, but it's the finale of the show. That's right. Kristen Bell, isn't that the, one of the two characters? Yeah, she's one of the main actors. She's struggling with everything coming to a close. And That's then right. there is a line from the other character that talks about the waves. Right, so she, if you've seen the show, if you haven't, you, you must watch it. But in the final episode, they've lived all of their, they've lived their life on earth, right? Now they've lived all of these lives in the hereafter, and it's going to come to an end. And she's really struggling with that, and she's really trying to keep Chidi, her partner, there, but he's, he's ready to move on. And so she's asking him for some sort of encouraging quote or thought that's going to help her embrace this experience, and he... He says, you know, picture a wave in the ocean. You can see it. It has form, right? You could describe its peak and, and the moves and the elements. It's there. It's real. And then eventually it, it moves back into the water, right? And so it no longer has that, that specific shape, but the water is still very much there. And I uh, love that moment in the, in the episode. It's so moving and beautiful, but it feels very fitting for my understanding of myself and my understanding of the divine and how those continue to evolve for me and uh, that it feels like two waves moving in the ocean and seeking to pay attention to those forms to honor those forms as they come and also know they will change and allowing for that movement 
uh, within me and the ways I engage with the divine has been essential for me, and that's part of why you know, I wanted to write this book. You said uh, allowing for God to change or your understanding of, of what God is. Uh, you have a line in the book about most people would rather deal with like a crazed gunman or mad gunman or something than deal with having some of these hard questions and understandings of God that are different than what it was 5, 10, 20 years ago. Why did that uh, not be, become your experience? What made you comfortable to be able to have this sort of engagement with something that was very central to who you were? Yeah, that's a great question. I, and I do think that's true, that for many people it feels terrifying to imagine your sense of God, of the divine, changing, because what we often do is conflate our understandings or belief about God with God's self. And therefore, if one changes, you feel like you're losing the whole thing. Instead of allowing for that, you know, my, my beliefs about God and understanding are not the same thing. And so there's a little bit of freedom there. And there's new ways to be able to encounter and understand and explore. And in doing so, also deepen um, my own sense of self and understanding there. And I think the, my greatest experience of that was just in, in grad school and having so, what I thought was going to be this just continual building on what I had always known and thought and just going from there and realizing, nope, the whole thing has to go. I've likened it to, you know, one of those, um, if a store is closing and uh, it's, a, it's a, we're, you know, going sale. It's not like, not like we're just selling our final products. Like you can literally buy the lamps that are on the wall. The carpets, take them, right? 50% off. And it was, it was like that. It was this total overhaul of everything, which can be really hard and really painful. And so I had a choice to make. I can say, okay, I'm just done with it all. It must mean that nothing I've experienced or believed or understood was ever true. Or maybe it means there's more. And I can really stay present here and invest in that and see what there is to see. And I'm really thankful I, I have. What would you say to someone who... Uh can't see this as an invitation to grow and to learn more, but instead they feel like this is the end. Like if, if we start to change what we understand about God, then that means we're giving up on God altogether. That obviously wasn't your experience, but for some people, the reason they would rather deal with a crazed gunman is because they think on the other side of these questions is nothing. Right. Yeah, I think just, just that where I said a minute ago that just at, at first, even allowing for the possibility that there is a distance between what I ascribe to God, what I assume is true about God, my experiences of God, and realizing there's distance between those and God's self, right? They are not one and the same. It doesn't devalue those. It doesn't denigrate those. I mean that they're not important. It just means they're not one and the same. And so even just allowing for that possibility and that it is simply something like um, to looking at a gem and just kind of moving to a different side and saying, oh, there's, a, there's another, you know, a light is, is shining through and I'm seeing something different I, I hadn't seen before and allowing for, for those possibilities, which, again, can be really challenging. But I do think the fruit of it is so life-giving because you're also, it's also inviting you to see, what well, I've had this way of understanding myself. I've had this story that I've told myself about who I am and how I take up space in the world. And maybe there's a possibility for that to change as well. And that has absolutely been my experience, that those two have been inseparable, that my evolving sense of the divine and self are just um, in sync. Doesn't I think it was John Calvin had a line that says anyone who finds God finds their true self. Mm. That like the two seem to be intertwined. Why do you think that is for you as well? That mm. understanding God and understanding yourself go together. Well, the way it has played out in my life is the ways that I came to realize just how uh, I played small in order to survive. And you know, I write I write about this in the book, but just some early experiences of trauma and as a five-year-old needing to make sense of that and say, okay, so how, how do I survive in this world now that I've, you know, I've had this experience? And the ways I came to understand that was be visible enough that you can perform and achieve and prove that you are worthwhile, but hidden enough that no one gets to know the real you or else they're going to know that you're actually the bad and dirty little girl that you know that you are and you're trying to keep everyone else you know, um, unaware, unaware of. And the, just coming to realize that that tightrope walk was so painful and so constricting for me and how it just kept me small. It kept me bound. I mean, even like literally keeping my stomach in knots because it was just this absolute tightrope walk that, that I had to um, maneuver with incredible precision at all times. And I did that for most of my life until I had my daughter, Olive, and she just said, no, <laughs> that, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And uh, uh, so 
seeing just how painful that was for me. It worked. It helped me. It served me, right? This, this story I told myself about who I was and, and how I would move in the world, it helped me. I'm grateful for it. But I also realized it was now hurting me. It was now no longer offering me anything. And so I had to release that. And so similarly, thinking about the stories I understand about you know, about God that have been really helpful for me, right? Obviously, I'm talking about the divine feminine, but uh, thinking about God as father as a, as a little girl with a wonderful father was really helpful. Mm-hmm. I'm not seeking to denigrate that just to say uh, there's a whole lot more. Yeah. And so before we jump into that, you just said something that, that really caught my ear where you said performing made you small, which is weird because in the book you describe getting your doctorate, being the captain of multiple athletic teams. Mm-hmm. Those seem to be ways in which many people cause themselves to be seen mm-hmm. and to achieve and to succeed in ways that many people go, oh, wow, look at that person of the captain. Or, this is doctor, which is weird because you make me always call you Dr. Mallory. Uh, so, which, sorry, it's the right reverend doctor, but that's fine. Yeah, Keep I mean, it, you know, <laughs> if that's your thing, cool. But th- those things seem very big and like forward-facing and, and attention-garnering. Why did that make you feel small, though? And yeah, so it was the balance of the two. So what people were seeing was the performance. They were seeing the success. They were seeing the, the accolades, the degree, whatever, but not actually letting them see even the parts that I was even hiding from myself in some ways. And so in that way, staying small, there were always limitations. It was like, be visible enough that that's what people see and observe about you, but not so visible that then they actually get to find out what's really true about you, which in my case was this fear that they would know. They would see the shame that I felt and thought was just, was true of me, that that was actually what was most true, was what shame told me. Yeah. And so, as you just described, you write about it in greater length in the book, that it was the birth of your first child that was, you didn't call it a dark night of the soul, but it seemed like that was a moment where there was like this major inflection point where things changed. Can you explain how, obviously like I get like you're not forward-facing, quote-unquote, performing in the way that is going to get you a degree or is going to get, you know, whatever affirmation, but what made you have such a dark night of the soul experience with the first pregnancy? Yeah, so part of it, I think, would just be the general experience anyways, but particularly it was becoming apparent to Olive, who is just fierce, and she is a force to be reckoned with. And so I, I, I've spent three decades building this particular way of functioning, of surviving, of making sense of myself, and, mm-hmm. and that <laughs> was built on um, success, productivity, efficiency, right? And those are just simply not options in parenting. Like, you put your kid's shoes on to leave, and by the time you get to the door, you've had to put them back on five times, That's right? True. There's nothing efficient about having kids. Like, mm-hmm. it just, not right. And, and then I couldn't be productive in the way I wanted to, right? I, I tried. Mm-hmm. And I just realized, there's no way this can look the same that it, that it did. Something had to be different. And it, and it broke me. And what it did was, whereas I had been able to walk this tightrope walk of enough hiddenness and enough visibility and making sure that that was always well-balanced, parenting just tipped those scales entirely where all of a sudden I was just hidden. I didn't have a mic. I wasn't on stage. I didn't have access to those normal ways of meaning-making for myself, right, and, and, and feeling that sense of affirmation. I'm just home, alone, often in tears with this newborn going, what the hell is going on? You said you felt hidden right there. I'm trying to make sense of the word because it's a unique word to use because, I mean, you're at home with your kid. What made you, what about that was hidden in that moment for you? I think maybe for some people and maybe for some women in particular, that space of being with kids, whether it's home or in whatever context, like that might feel the most affirming and the most life-giving. It was not for me. I really love being a parent. I love being a mom. But what was most affirming for me were the external spaces, right? It's, yeah. it's the stage, it's the platform, it's the opportunities to speak, which is what's in me to do in some ways, right? It's not like that goes away entirely, but the energy behind it is now quite different than it, it was previously. But when you are spending endless hours a day just sitting home nursing a baby and no one sees it, you're not getting praise for this, right? Um, <laughs> you haven't showered in three days. You're just trying to, to function. Uh, yeah, I know. Your wife will tell you all about it. Um, and 
<laughs> uh, yeah, you're, you, you're just surviving. Like, that's it. That's all you, you've got going sure, for yeah, you right yeah. now. And granted, you're also keeping another human alive. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, but it's very different in, in terms of the external experience yeah. and, and how people perceive you in it in a way that uh, was so disruptive for me in painful and necessary ways. Yeah. So my wife and I have three daughters, like Josh said. Uh, so I'm familiar being around little children. And once my, after my third child was born, my wife was a NICU nurse, and she was working two days a week. And so two days a week, she would leave. We were taking care of the, uh, all three kids at home. And I was doing a podcast, sorry for the name drop, with Barbara Brown Taylor. And I, I have my office, I'm doing this, and then my daughter walks into the bathroom, which is next to our office, goes to the restroom, and then she comes, starts banging on the door while I'm talking to Barbara Brown Taylor, and she goes, Daddy, come wipe my hiney, come wipe my hiney. And I'm like, this is not an altar in the world. No, this is not, this is not working. Um, but, but it definitely is very disorienting for me as a father, and it changes how I understand things. Um, one of the things you say in the book is as a spiritual director, you have a question that you often ask people, which is, what is the image of God that's behind that? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were thinking of yourself being hidden, being not forward-facing on the stage, but your work was focused there, and it made you feel hidden, is there an image of God that was behind that to you in that moment? Well, so part of why I ask that question for folks, particularly in spiritual direction sessions, if they're telling me this is what they believe about something, right? This is a story they're, they're telling themselves. Then one of the ways to begin to interrogate whether that is actually true or helpful or not is just to say, okay, if that was true, then what is the image of God behind that? What would that say about the divine? You know, what... Um, what would that say about how, how God is, how God sees you, whatever? And sometimes what you discover is, yeah, that's actually, that, yes, that, that aligns with the vision of the divine that I want to have and I think is true and good. And, and oftentimes it's not. They realize, yeah, that's not what I think God is like. And yet the story they're telling themselves it would lead to and points to um, an image of an actually really cruel and mean uh, God, right? So that's, that's kind of the impetus behind asking folks that question, just to begin to interrogate that, that reality, because we're always telling ourselves stories about ourselves, about others, and, and about our, our experience um, with God. I did have a really meaningful encounter with, uh, with God, um, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, but in that season of hiddenness, and I'm just doing some um, seeking to enter into a sacred text, and specifically a text in, in Luke um, where Jesus is, is visiting someone's home, and I'm trying to imagine it, right, to see myself in this, in this story, in this experience, and there's a woman washing Jesus' feet, and so I'm, I'm just seeing the this, this story in front of me. I'm thinking, okay, I'm asking, where do I fit into this story? Like, where would I be in this? And I thought, oh, I'll probably be the woman who's crying because I'm at home a lot, and everything's kind of wild and, and chaotic, and um, but I, I, I didn't resonate with her, and then I saw some of the religious leaders, and I thought, well, maybe it's, maybe them, that's who I'd be, and it just... No, I never found it. And I just kept going, where am I in this story? And I realized eventually that there was a table in the corner I could see and I was crouched underneath it. I was, I was hidden. Yeah. Um, and it was so uh, representative of the season I was in. Uh, and then having that encounter where as I'm, as I'm watching the story unfold and seeing Jesus talk to these different people, that eventually he came over and just very gently walked over to me and just sat with me under the table. So I, that you know, chapter that God is hiding under the table was very much that experience of God entering into that place uh, of, of hiddenness with me, not saying anything, right? Not, not trying to make it all better or to quickly move out of it, but to be fully present with me in it in a way that I desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the idea, the image of, of God is hidden. God is the one who's there with you. God is beside you, whatever you're going through. It's really compelling. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is that the image of God as masculine, God as father, was an image that was really helpful for you growing up. That was a, a positive experience, a positive connotation for you in the same way that you're hoping and imagining that's exactly what it's going to be like for your kids, right? That right now, in the same way that you described how your dad would... Uh, read stories with all the different voices and, you know, get in character is the same way that your daughters are experiencing father right now. And you're not wanting to get rid of that, but you're arguing that there's more to it as you start to add the feminine into it. And one of the things that you say is that it helps, um, correct my language because I'm just kind of riffing here, but is that it it speaks to what you're already experiencing inside of you. Is that right? Is that how you said, said that? 
where there's already this, this other perception of who God is that's in you, but to add more language helps you give language to what you're already experiencing. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah, I think just extending an invitation to, to all of us to acknowledge that we are being invited to name the divine wherever and however we experience God. Yeah. You know, I tell this story about um, Hagar being the first person in these sacred texts to name God, right? And this, this enslaved Egyptian woman who's in a horrific experience and she's in the middle of nowhere and she has this encounter with the divine and she could have gone you know, it, she could, could have made any number of excuses as to why this wasn't real or to why she should not have the power or agency or access to be able to encounter God, let alone to ascribe a name to God, to say, this is how I understand this experience right now. But she did it, right? She put this name of God on her lips and breathed it out and said, this is how I, you are the God who sees me. And I just want to continue to extend that invitation to everyone to say, we are each being invited to do that, to say, oh, this experience I'm having right now, this, you're with a friend, you're with your partner, and you experience unconditional love, right, in, in some way that's really beautiful and meaningful. Unconditional love is a way of saying God. This is a way of getting at what we mean by God, what we mean by the, the divine. This is another way to, to name that, to language that. And then when I continue to encounter more and more experiences that point me to that, that divine sensibility to go, yeah, there it is. I want to put some language uh, around that and then find that we will have those encounters in some really surprising and unexpected ways. What do you think are some of the most surprising and unexpected ways that maybe you've seen other people, maybe as a spiritual director or in other uh, settings, experience God in ways that maybe they didn't see before? Can you think of examples of ways that they've started to see God places they didn't see him before? You know, one of the... I work with a lot of women, not exclusively, but I think this is particularly true for how women are often conditioned to, um, and and for all sorts of reasons, but to see uh, authority as being external to us, as something outside of us, and we're often in in context and spaces where that is just how things are, you know, legislated, right? That you don't have the authority or agency here, and so um, really working with a lot of women to help them understand the ways that um, when they think about, and they would write on paper, right? Yes, I know that God is within me, but what does that actually mean? And how are you able to access and tap into wisdom within that you know things, right? You don't, it's, it's not an intellectual knowing, right? But you know here in, in your gut, you have access to this wisdom and re- in realizing that is the divine right there, right? It's like, like we, we read in the Proverbs about um, wisdom being personified as this, this woman that everyone has access to. She's not hiding. It's not like she's in this lofty room only for a few people who have a certain level of power. No, like she's marching in the street saying, here I am. Everyone has access to me and I'm here to move all of us towards really beautiful and just ends. That's in here. Like I, I have access to, to God in that, in that way. And that's been a really special one and important one for me to engage with wisdom within and to know I, I actually really know things. Um, and my sense is that we come into the world knowing those things and then pretty early on we begin to forget them because of various experiences with the chaos of the world or our families, our life. And so, so much of it is actually just a process of remembering what we already once knew. Um, and that that's a, has been essential for, for me and I, I really enjoy getting to partner with people and, and women in particular as they begin to identify that within themselves and draw from it. What do you think the difference of remembering the divine that's always been with you is versus the idea that you learn and you start to like, aggregate this data about the divine as you age? What do you think the difference is in how we come to understand who God is? Because it feels like I'm, if, if, it's, if God is outside of me and I'm seeking to make sense of it, it's like it's always external to me and I'm, there's always this is striving towards it, that I have to access that in, in some way. And if I can just understand God correctly enough, right, or if I can learn enough about God or listen to what everyone's saying, and not, not that any of those are, are negatives necessarily, but it feels very different to start and say, spirit exists here within me now. I want to understand what that means more fully. That's a fundamentally different starting point to, to go, I already have access to this, right? I did not have to do shit to make that happen. I just, I just breathed. That's it. But it was my birthright. Like, I have spirit within. And starting from that place is just a fundamentally different starting point than going, 
okay, if I can get in the right place or make the right connections or read the right books, then I'll know and understand. Yes, those, those can be really helpful tools and resources, but if, but if the energy is, I'm, I, I, it already starts here within me, and now I'm just, this is helping me put language to what, what I actually already know, mm-hmm. because God resides within, very different experience. So you give a bunch of different uh, God is statements. How many total are there in the book? I don't know. 12, 15, question. something like that. <laughs> and each one is a way for people to name what they've already experienced about the divine. Is that, am I getting that right? I think so. I, may, not, maybe not everyone will have the same level of experience with all of them, right? And, or maybe they have... For instance, midwife. Not everyone has birthed a baby into the world or been part of a birthing community in that way. Um, but I think even, even you know, the, the, hopefully the image is evocative enough that they can see themselves in that situation and how they've experienced being midwifed by God, um, at, you know, at, by, by way of one example. But yeah, these are just this collection of, of feminine images and metaphors for the divine that have been deeply significant for me. For the record, I've never given birth to anyone rough room. Um, but, uh, but the chapter had something in there that I found really like insightful that I never, uh, got before. And you tell about this, uh, I think it was a midwife that you might've been reading her stuff. And she talked about when you cut your hand, it means that something is wrong, but there's different pain of childbirth that it's not saying that something's wrong, but that something is going right. Right. These different kinds of pain. So, so, right. So if you cut your hand and you feel that sensation of pain, it's saying, hey, something's wrong. We need to address this. And so in that moment, yes, you're seeking to, um, to, numb, to you know, numb the pain, the wound, or you know, address it in some way. And, and that's fine. But it's different. it goes differently in childbirth where when you are experiencing the pain, it's not saying something's wrong. It's actually a signal. Everything is going as it, as it is meant to be. Pain is a necessary part of this process. And it's very different than if I go, which I normally do. I, I want to uh, numb this. I want to alleviate this. I want to control this in some way instead to go, I'm willing to surrender to this pain because I believe it has the power to lead me to something and to lead to new life. Yeah. And so when you see God as the mid- midwife in that moment, you see God saying, lean into the pain, mm. that this is going somewhere. You can't run away from it, but that your healing is ultimately on the other side. Am I getting that right? Yeah, and I never, I don't want to glorify pain by, by any means, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's still painful. It's still, it can still be uh, traumatized. It can still be really, really awful. And I think my experience has been that in seasons where I have most wanted to, like in a birthing, you know, scene in a movie or something where you just see the laboring person like, get this out. Like, you know, they just give me the drugs, whatever, right? It's like, I just, I want this over. I want this done. I want out of this experience that in the seasons where I have had that sensation, I want to move on. I want to be out of this job. I want to, whatever it is. Um, that when I have been willing to say, just sense into like, okay, there's some pain here. There's some discomfort. And instead of seeking to control or double down or alleviate it, can pain be a teacher here? Is there something that she is seeking to help me see in a way I wouldn't be able to otherwise? Yeah. And that was absolutely my experience uh, in, in labor, you know, in literal childbirth, that if I could surrender to this wisdom that my body already had, I never had to teach my body how to do anything. It already knew what to do. Could I surrender to my body in those ways and trust that as I, as I experienced this pain that was very real pain, trusting that new life can emerge on the other side. Yeah. So that was, you know, my literal experience, of course, in childbirth, but then also in those other seasons where, okay, if I'm willing to surrender to the pain and trust that there is wisdom in here and there's something that I can access through this in a way I wouldn't be able to without the pain, that's really hard to do, though, by yourself. Um, that's a lot to navigate and, and guide yourself through. So what might it look like to do that with engaging this image of God as a midwife who comes alongside and who, like I write about my experience, just keeps saying, you're doing so good, mama. You're doing so good, mama. Right? That experience of having this amazing presence, this affirming, empowering presence with me that would enable that process in a way I never could nor was meant to do by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you also tell a story about um, a woman that you've got to know in the uh, prison system who was there for attempted murder uh, towards her husband. Her husband survived. Uh, I think he's paralyzed. And so it's a tragic situation. Uh, they have two, two, two boys, probably two kids. And 
husband's obviously paralyzed now. Wife is in prison, unable to, to be there to take care of the kids. And you, you describe the story, and it's just heartbreaking. It's just terrible all around. The husband, wasn't he a, a veteran? Been through uh, the trauma of being in uh, a combat veteran? And in that chapter, you talk about God as the seamstress, correct? And the idea is that God is putting things back together. And you use the story of uh, Genesis 3, where God closed uh, Adam and Eve. When you think about how God is the seamstress in a story like that, where it seems like nothing is being brought together and nothing is made beautiful and there's nothing is, can ever come from something like that, how does God as seamstress help in a moment like that? Yeah, if I just look around in that moment of being in, inside that prison <laughs> facility, listening to the story, knowing what my student has experienced, knowing the trauma that she's endured, the trauma that she's perpetuated, and just going, how could he, even to, to utter the idea, the name of, of healing here, or even justice, just feels so, it just falls flat, right? If all I have are those data in front of me, then, then I... Where can I even begin to go from there? That's utterly overwhelming. So I literally will take time to sit and imagine God as seamstress sitting in the corner of her sewing room, like my friend Dee that I talk about, who's faithful to go into this space and to, to just continually day after day to take and repair these, the, uh, take you know, fabric and, and mend them together and create something really beautiful. And so I, I will image God in that way. Uh, trusting, okay, it is not up to me in this moment somehow to make all of this work or come together and to figure out what justice and, and healing and restoration could even look like here. If I instead believe that God already is at work to engage that very end, right, to move towards those very ends of healing and, and restoration and justice, then how can I, instead of saying, I, I, I've got to do this, to instead receive the invitation, I'm being invited to join God in that work, which is a fundamentally different starting point. And then in that, to look for other people who already are partnering with God who is seamstress, right? Whether that's a really kind warden in a prison or, you know, a, a teacher who's coming alongside with, with humility and love and care or a, whatever it may be, right? Having eyes open to see, God, where, where are you repairing the fabric of the universe in this moment and in this space that might otherwise not have many examples to tell me, tell me that that's actually true? Yeah. Yeah. You make this great observation about the effect of fig leaves, that they actually are like poisonous or they can have a deleterious effect on the skin. And so you make this great move about God takes what people thought would clothe them, but ultimately would actually do more harm than good and replaces that. And you make the observation that many of the things that we think are clothing us and, and like protecting us actually can be the very things that enslave us in the future. Uh, but, of course, we're not seeing that in the moment. And when you think about how success, in a lot of ways, was something that was uh, like your forward-facing persona that made you feel okay, that made you feel small, uh, other people probably don't see those things in the moment as like, this is actually something that can be very harmful and hurtful to me. How do we gain that awareness to go, wait, these things that I'm using, like fig leaves, actually can be the very things that are going to be more of an irritation than I could ever imagine? Yeah, so I talk about, you employ that story in Genesis 3 of these humans who come into the world with, with innocence and wide-eyed wonder like any other kid, like a kid might, right? And then being deceived and betrayed and all of a sudden... It's one of those line in the sand, uh, lines in the sand moment where everything is, is different and, and cast into a very different relief. And what do you do now? All of a sudden you feel exposed and, and naked, right? There's that, that line of it since like they understand that they're naked. And it's not that they weren't before. They just didn't even have that category, right? That doesn't even factor in. And so their first response is we, we cover ourselves with these fig leaves in the thought that they are going to help provide what we need. And I think it's essential to say it does, Right these coping mechanisms that we develop out of our, our pain and trauma, yes, they serve us in some way. Thank God for them. Thank God we have access to different things that can really, really, even in a very short term, offer this, this uh, help and assistance. But like any other, uh, like, a, like coping mechanisms, the, the fig leaves actually then become the very thing that keeps pain in, in the game because they, they sting and, and burn the skin and, and can be really damaging. And so that image of the seamstress coming in and... 
uh, instead saying, no, we've got a better option here and actually creating different clothing for them to, to wear that would actually provide what they need and, and um, not keep the, the cycle of harm and trauma going. It's a really beautiful image for me there. Yeah. But part of it in, in the way I think about that in my life is, okay, looking, looking at, um, at the ways that I adopted certain uh, practices or stories or beliefs or um, uh, habits, patterns, right? And just seeking to better understand with deep curiosity and humility, why would that have been the, the path I chose to go or why would I have picked that thing up or whatever? Understanding that, extending deep compassion to myself and empathy going, of course, you felt afraid. You know, you, you're, you're a five-year-old girl feeling shame. Of course you would pick up those fig leaves. That makes sense. And, and offering that kindness to my five-year-old self that she couldn't do then, but I can do for her now, right? And so having those moments, and then if, if it indeed I'm ready to do this, right? You can't rush this, but and then going, thank you to those parts of me that, that rose up to take care or, you know, the fig leaves that I, I grabbed to, to try to survive, like honoring them for the ways that they've served me and really truly honoring them and then saying, and now I want to move forward in a different way, in a way that my, you know, 34-year-old self can do differently than my five-year-old self never could. All she could do was, was what would work for, for a five-year-old um, and honoring, honoring those choices that she made, understanding them and also saying, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move forward differently. You've been very intentional both now and even just a few minutes before to honor what got you through previous stages of life without um, saying you've got to hold on to them, but acknowledging their time and a season, but you've got to move on. Why are you so intentional to use that language of honoring and being grateful for those in that season, even if right now you're getting rid of them? Because I think it's really harmful otherwise. If, you, if it's just, that was wrong, that was bad, um, and, and we do that even if our own, when we look back and think about our own selves, the different iterations of ourselves, right? Um, the different iterations of our understanding of, of God. It's very easy to go, oh, oh, wait, no, that was wrong, that was bad, and now, now what I'm in is, is right. I find that to be really unhelpful, especially because the way it, it tends to make me then far more judgmental for someone else. Because, sure. oh, that's the place they're in, that's wrong, that's bad. Instead, to go, of course, look at what this person is experiencing. Of course, that would be the choice they made. Yeah. I don't have to name that as to say I want them to stay in that forever, right? Or to, that I can't acknowledge it. It might be harmful to them and to someone else. But go, yeah, of course they would. And leading, leading from that place of empathy that I'm trying to do for myself and then for, then for others. Uh, but then continue to live into that invitation to say, and there are better options that don't keep the cycle of pain, you know, in, in play. Yeah. Um, but it, I think for me, it's just continued to engender that sense of, of empathy that I really want to lean into for the ways I treat myself and for others rather than judgment and critique. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really helpful because it seems that when we lack empathy for ourselves, it keeps shame and the cycle of shame ongoing because you do a behavior which then you become ashamed of and then therefore to deal with the shame, you run back to the behavior that you don't want and it seems like it's really... Uh, enslaving. I want to jump into what I probably assume will be the most provocative image you use in just a second. Um, but before I do that, uh, after this one, I want to open this up for questions. So if you have questions, be thinking about it. Uh, I will open the floor up after this one. Uh, when you heard me say what I think is probably the most provocative image, which one do you think I'm talking about? Can you guess? <laughs> um, yeah, my assumption would be God is sexual trauma survivor. That's why you're a doctor. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. That's a, uh, I mean, that's a pretty provocative title. And before maybe we jump into it, maybe what was the impetus for using those words in that title? Well, first let me just name that this can be a really painful topic. And so care for yourself however you might need to in this moment for what this, this might bring up for us. But um, I spent the first five years of my career working in a residential facility for women survivors of various forms of trauma and most often sexualized trauma. And so just getting to be witness to and being invited into these stories, I continue to carry them with me. In the same season, I'm in grad school, I'm studying theology, and I'm deeply seeking to make connections between these two and finding that it was, it was really hard to do without some considerable translation. Sometimes just in changing a language and other times going, 
that theological concept does not work here, right? You're at, for instance, you're asking these women to give of themselves for the sake of the other, a la Jesus in Philippians 2. They have been forced to give of themselves for the sake of the other, right? They don't yet have a sense of self from which they could even give. And so you're, what you think is this, this lofty kind of theological invitation is actually a further invitation to harm. So I'm trying to engage in that kind of um, maybe public theology there with this, you know, with these these women, and try to take seriously the stories that they're so graciously um, inviting me into, and acknowledging that in those places of pain, pain, and particularly when our sexuality is is involved in some way, then that is often a place that we would keep separate from God. That was certainly mine, right? That was an area of trauma for me, and so it was like all of the other parts of my life could be open to God, but not that one, because I had so much shame about that part of my life. So I was not about to see God as somehow part of my sexuality. Like that was worse and and dirty and other than these other parts of me that were much more presentable to God, to myself, to others. And so for me, the power instead is, is looking at this image of God who knows what it's like to suffer in God's own body. God knows what it's like, um, to be, I want to be really mindful of the language I use in open space, right? So folks can read it. Maybe that's a different experience. But so maybe I'll just leave it there. But to say, to, to God knows suffering in God's own own body, and so I, you know, I employ this image of of Jesus' crucifixion, right, and the pain and suffering there, um, and in 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 what is ultimately a deeply sexually humiliating act to even be strung up on a cross naked for everyone to see, so that the powers that be could say hey, just in case it wasn't clear, we're the ones who actually have power. Um, and I'm, I feel like that's not unlike a lot of our, of our stories, and particularly for the women I was working with. And so helping to find connections there that maybe in other spaces, and particularly religious ones, where their stories are not believed, that they know that that will never be the case with the divine, that they will never have a God who questions, well, was it what you were wearing, right? And uh, or, or anything else, or to say this, this didn't happen. No, you would never have to justify their, the story and their experience, but they will always be met with a God who says, me too. Uh, I, th- I think I'll follow your lead on uh, talking about this in open space might not be the, the best move. And so uh, we'll just leave it at that. I think you said enough. Um, so how about with that being said, uh, questions that uh, anyone wants to ask, if you do... Um, let me know. Anyone? Yes. Well, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, give us some guidance, okay, uh, on this. Uh, what is the difference between? Um, trying to learn something about God from your own experiences, from looking within, from, you know, you, you reference the gut a lot, and projecting God in your own image. So how, how, how is being made in God's image different from God being made in our own image in this process you've gone through? Yeah, I think that's, it's a really helpful and important distinction and one that it, you just you have to be in the work to do it, right? It's hard to, to get there just intellectually. It just comes in the actual moments of meditating and sitting with a particular image where I'm able to both engage a God who looks like me in her femininity, in her embodiment, right? And see that God and hear the way that she talks to me and then hear the differences in the things that she says to me or about me that are often different than things I say to or about myself, right? And then asking, okay, so what is the fruit of that? Like, what, what, what um, would be the implications of if that experience is true? And if this image of God that I'm encountering, the things that she's saying to me, the experience that we're having, if this is real, what are the implications of that? What does that say about humanity? What does that say about God? What does it say about me? Do those things hold up? And if they do, then I'm willing to take the risk to say, this is a, this is a really beautiful and, and meaningful experience. And it is a risk because there's no chance for mastery here, right? But there is this sense of wanting to hold together both boldness and humility. Boldness to say, God dwells within me and within this particular feminine body, therefore I will boldly seek to engage that God and to, uh, to spend time with that God, to learn more, to, to process, to understand. I will do that really boldly and in new ways that I haven't done for, 
for perhaps. And at the same time, I'm going to do so holding deep humility to know the process or the, the option rather of perfection, of mastery, of control. They don't exist here. Um, I'll, I'll never be getting the full, the full thing, right? There will always be some measure of distance between the actual essence of God and my experience of God. That's really important to hold on to. And may we never allow that distance to keep us from engaging. Thanks, Chris. Someone else? So, uh, good evening, Dr. Wickoff. I was going to ask, um, a lot of the things you talk about when you talk about universal truth, they don't operate in a vacuum. But uh, most of the nonprofit work you've done, most of the academic work you've done, and in some of the spiritual work you've done at our mutual shared space at Otter Creek has been in these big, white, evangelical spaces. <clears throat> but the people who really, really need the kind of work that you do, and I'm going to say you've been a transformative figure to me, uh, in the in having a woman preacher professor, because I didn't b- believe in women professors before I had contact with. I mean, I didn't. Be- excuse me, I didn't believe in women preachers before I had contact with you. That was transformative. But to be very frank, my journey, even getting to Lipscomb, is only the result of the good Lord, because there's no other way that I ever could have been there without an incredible amount of providence. So, how do you reconcile being in these spaces where, to be very frank with you, a lot of the people in those spaces while they need your work, there's a whole other communities that need your work a lot more desperately. And is that something that you think about, you reconcile, or are you waiting for some sort of providential kind of occurrence happening to make your work more mainstream? Well, actually not mainstream, more niche to those communities. Yeah, thanks, William. What comes to mind for me in relation to your question is just the answer of why I even wanted to write this book, because I'm convinced that the ways that we think about God necessarily inform the ways that we think about everything and everyone else. So um, to kind of draw on what you're, you're saying here, if the only ways that we know to conceive of the divine is as a white male, then imagine with me a world where the white male is going to be the one who's holding the most power, right? And anyone who does not reflect that God, I know, take some time, see if you can get there. Um, let me know if you do. Um, it, but then anyone who does not reflect that particular image is, is necessarily less so, right? Because when we think about God, what we are talking about is the, the, greatest, uh, the greatest ideal that we can imagine, right? The, all the virtues we could imagine, the greatest epitome of strength, of, of power, of beauty, of truth. When we think about those things, that's what we mean when we, we use the symbol God, so now when we ascribe, we ascribe images to that God and they're only reflective of one type of human, that's disastrous. And I want to say it's equally disastrous for those who actually reflect that image as it is for those who don't. Because either way, we're all missing out on the experience of a diverse God who actually reflects the diversity of humanity. So yes, I want to be in spaces where, uh, where, where William, in my experience with you as a black man, helps me image a black male God better. And I can have, have intimate encounters with a God like that as I, as I pray, as I meditate, as I think to go, oh, if God is like this, what would that mean about how I interact with William, right? Or, or how I interact with anyone else in the various ways that they are embodied in this world. To me, ultimately, those are the implications of this, of this conversation. That, again, the ways that we think about uh, God necessarily informs how we think about ourselves and everyone else. And when you get a hold of that, when you have encounters with a God who shows up <laughs> as the seamstress, as the midwife, as the mother, it is impossible, in my experience, to turn back yeah. Tell us about the writing process. Tell us about the writing process. Without using birthing metaphors. <laughs> Without I don't using birthing metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's the writing process is therapeutic, cathartic, incredibly vulnerable. Um, and no, I have to use a birthing metaphor. Sorry. Um, it is it is like the experience of being pregnant, in that you are afraid of the outcome. You are afraid of what will be at the end of that. That there's only one way to right for this to go at the end, and this thing has to come out, and it's painful, and it's vulnerable, and right. But you get to the point where actually keeping this in would even be more 
painful. And so that's how it was for, for writing, that I actually it hurt more to not write than it did to write. And so just continuing to, to go to that space. And I'm really thankful for the gift of that space to then be able to make sense even further for myself of these images of my own lived experience. Uh, and now still very much leaning into the vulnerability of that to go, okay, now it's, now it's in the world and I have zero control over what happens from here. Not loving that so much, but uh, here I am. What do you not love about that the most? <laughs> oh, goodness. Because this, you know, the, the stories that I lived for so long was it's up to you to make things happen, right? You can't tell anyone about this. You're alone in this. You've got to figure it out. So from five years on, five years old on, that's the story that you're living into. And now you're in a place where that option does not exist. You, you, you're not alone in this. You can't be alone in this. You don't want to be either. Um, but even if you tried to take control of this and say, I know every end this is going to move towards. I know what success is going to look like. I can guarantee something. That Those options don't exist here. That's really beautiful. I'm thankful for that. That's a continued invitation into uh, new life, right? But it's also, it's, it's hard. It's, it's challenging. Yeah. I suspect I'm not alone in having grown up in a religious context where my imagination and my emotions were considered um, something to be stifled or not explored. Um, and so what would you say to somebody who longs for these images of God but doesn't quite know how to trust themselves or how to even start with that process? Yes. Thank you. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, and that was also my experience, right? So if you have a system, again, let's try to imagine, a system where women are relegated to a subordinated status, then what we associate with a feminine, which is true for men and women, right? We all have access to both of these. But what we associate with the feminine, therefore more so with women, is emotion, right? Or maybe this ability to imagine and lean to something and, and a bit more playful in that way. Well, that doesn't get to have the same power, right? We, we denigrate that and we're seeking to um, highlight what we associate with the, with the masculine, what often is reason and logic and understanding. Those can be helpful things, but my God, if that's all I had, y'all, I would have been out because it's just terribly insufficient. It's not wrong it's just terribly insufficient. And so my spirituality is only able to continue growing and evolving and, uh, and leading me to life because I've been able to tap into the deep femininity within me that says, yeah, you have wisdom within you here. You're able to explore and play and imagine here. And that is really hard for a lot of people, men and women included. If you've not given, been given permission to do that, it can feel really challenging. So one of the practical things is just finding someone who can hold that kind of space for you, right? Uh, which, which I'm thankful that I've been able to do that with some folks and thankful that folks have, have done that um, with me. And then again, just, just try it. Just do it. Just so, you know what? With, I'm going to seek to just enter in with curiosity and without critique and just see what happens. And then at the end of that, say, yeah, so what were the outcomes of that? Do I feel more loving? Do I feel freer? Am I kinder to myself and to others? You know, if, these, if this is the type of fruit from those sorts of experiences where you're leaning into your imagination, where you're trusting your, your, the wisdom that's within, why would we not want to do that? So yeah, really just taking the step to, to try it, but then also really paying attention to what are, what's, what are the results here of, of this? And I think if you do, you're going to want more. Outstanding. All right. Well, uh, thank you for the questions. Mallory, thanks for doing this. And thank you. Thank you so much for writing this book. And congratulations on this book being out in the world and giving birth to your third child. Third child. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Thank you.